If you have a Bible with you, would you open it up to the book of Romans? And uh, we'll be in Romans chapter 1. A couple of announcements for you before you uh, dive into the message with me. And it's related to the inserts that are in your bulletin. Um, two little inserts that are in it. Uh, today, specifically, today is a picnic, church picnic, right? And that'll be fun. It's over at uh, Meridian Township Park. A little insert in your bulletin looks like that. So don't hesitate to come out, especially if you're new to New Hope and you want to get to meet people. It's a great way to do that. The one thing we ask is if you're able to bring a meal uh, to share, like a side dish, and you can distribute it around for other people to enjoy, and, and the meat will be provided. And then the other thing in there is a little insert related to the prayer walk at MSU. And I just want to amplify that a little bit. My wife and I participated in this, and on Tuesday of this week, um, at MSU, Nathan and Courtney Reynolds, who attend here, they work in the crew ministry, will be leading individuals around campus to pray for things that will take place this fall. So they encourage you, I encourage you to join them, and you can look at the insert and get a little more information about that. So we're going to go into Romans chapter 1, and if you're new here, I want to catch you up real quickly, or, or if you've missed the last couple of weeks, I don't want you feeling like you walked into the middle of a movie, because we've been in Romans for about 10 weeks now, and I just need to give you a few details here. In, in Romans chapter 1, here's what Paul is summarizing. He's saying, God has made himself known, but his ways have been rejected, and his ways have been replaced. So in verse 19, this is where we were at in the last couple weeks. In verse 19, his argument is, everyone knows there's a creator. By the time you get to verse 20, he says, there's a cosmological argument for it. God's fingerprints are all over creation. You can see the evidence. So there's a cosmological defense, which means no one can then say, I didn't know, because it ends up in verse 20 by saying, they're all without excuse. Now, where we ended last week in verses 21 and 23 brought in this understanding that humans, as a result of rejecting God, began seeking alternatives to God and exchanging the glory of the incorruptible God for things less than God. That sets us up well for verse 24 in where we're going today. We're going to actually get all the way to verse 32. So, Eight verses, are going to finish chapter one, right? All right, okay. Uh, and I promise you it won't take till three in the afternoon to do it because we have a picnic to go to. So I, I know you have lunch plans. So I want to pray with you, but before I do that, just a heads up again. In the last couple weeks, I've been giving parents advance notice that if you have school-aged children, we're going to be talking about sexual things this morning heterosexuality and homosexuality and how that relates to this passage. And, and if, if you feel like maybe your school-age kids are a little too young for this conversation, you might want to keep that in mind as we go into prayer. Maybe this would be a good time for you to usher them out. If you want them to be part of it, it's great. I will treat it with gentleness, but just know the Scriptures are very blunt, okay? So let's pray. God, we come before you and recognize that we have to ask you to help us understand this. Our human intellect brings us understanding to a degree, but we fall far short when it comes to spiritual matters unless we have the presence of your Holy Spirit. So we pray for that. I pray for that for everyone in this auditorium, those who are watching online live right now and those who will be watching later. God, I pray for every one of us that we would have the presence of your Holy Spirit and the ability to discern and understand and perceive and grasp what it is that you want us to know. We ask for this in the mighty name of Jesus, our Savior. 
Amen. The great thing about the Bible, the most comforting thing to me is this. God makes it really, really clear that what he says doesn't change over time. It doesn't change with culture. When he says it, he means it. So Scripture says the word of the Lord stands forever. It's unalterable. Let me back that up. Will you see it on the screen? Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 8. The, the writer says, grass withers. We know that, right? Wintertime comes, grass fades away, flowers fade away. He says the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. That's Old Testament. Did God say that in the New Testament? He did. Look with me on the screen. Matthew 24, 35, Jesus speaking. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So that means what God said 8,000 years ago is just as true and just as relevant today because he never changes. Let's just check our hearts on this. You verbally respond. Does God ever change? Okay. You, you, some, some individuals may not be there yet. The majority sound like they agree that God says he never changes and he means that. But if you're not there yet, I want to help you to settle this in your heart. If God changes, we have a much larger issue before us than whether or not he approves or disapproves of human sexual behavior. Because if his mind changes on things, he could change his mind about forgiveness and salvation and whether or not I'm going to spend eternity in heaven. So we have a much bigger issue if God ever changes. And he says, I don't change. Malachi 3.6, I, the Lord, do not change. And then it's emphasized again in 1 Samuel 15, 29. God will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. That means I may not like what the Bible says, but that doesn't make it any less true. God's word stands forever. So we're going to deal with the really, really hard stuff right up front, and I'm going to commit something to you. I promise you, although it's very dark and heavy, because there's this big exchange going on in which people have traded something for God. I will commit to you, although it's very dark in the beginning, light breaks through and it does get brighter. It's a good thing. So just hang on to that, especially if you feel yourself squirming in your seat. Here's how Romans is going to be a little bit different today than what it has been in the past. We're going to look at eight verses as one chunk and so we're going to read through all the verses to understand the groundwork that Paul has laid for this presentation, and then we'll go back to it in parts. So look with me, and, or maybe you have your Bible open. If you, if you have an electronic version right now, maybe on your phone or your iPad, we're in the New American Standard Version. The NASB is what you'll see on the screen. It starts out in verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools, verse 23, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and the birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. That's what we looked at last week. Verse 24, therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever amen verse 26 
For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the women and burned in their desires toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, They not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. I promise you that because of three services and hundreds of people gathering here over the course of the weekend, some people are not liking that passage. Some individuals have never read Romans before, and the first especially Romans 1 saying, I didn't know the Bible said that. And you're wondering right now, did I read that correctly? And it's causing tension. It's okay. There's parts of the Bible that do cause tension. My experience in general, and I'm speaking of the church in general, this passage has been handled extremely poorly over generations to the degree that it almost makes me embarrassed for some of the things that have been drawn out of that and things that people have said as a result of what you just read, not understanding the passage. So I want to be very clear up front. This is not an issue of us versus them. We all struggle every single day with sin. We're humans living on planet Earth, a fallen planet, and we struggle with sin. It easily entangles us, the writer of the Bible says. The picture of that is a hunter out going after his prey and slinging a a sling towards his prey and wrapping up the legs of the animal with a sling with weights on the end and the animal falling over as a result of it. It entangles the legs. That's the way they picture sin. We'll come back to that. Last week we talked about the consequences of deviating from God's moral law, moving away from what he said is right and that there's a price to pay for rejecting God's standards. Last week, I didn't use 1 Corinthians 6, but I'm going to use it several times today, and I want to use just a a section of it to back up what I just said, that there is a price for deviating from God's moral law. Here's the first section, 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Now, if many of you are familiar with 1 Corinthians 6, you're wondering why am I leaving out the big chunk. I'll come to the chunk after this, but hear this. He says, do not be deceived for a reason because the stakes are incredibly high. We're talking about eternity here. Some will not be in the kingdom of heaven according to what the Bible says because of a willing rejection of what God has made very, very clear. So the author says, do not be deceived, and it assumes something. It assumes that there are those who will attempt to deceive. 
who will attempt to alter these truths, to shape it to their own liking. In other words, there will be those who will deny that what God made clear, they will attempt to convince people that it is something that is acceptable. When God says, it is not. So don't be led astray. There's things that we need to understand about what God is specifically saying here because the author says, don't be fooled. Just because someone condones some action doesn't mean you should participate. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, I'm going to ask you to begin seeing this through the lens of the gospel. See this as a gospel issue because Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. My way leads to life. The world's way leads to destruction. So don't be fooled. And we move into this, I understand what Paul's talking about here when he says there's this exchange taking place. I, I personally am calling it the great exchange. There is a major point coming out of 24 through 32. It's not in your notes. You might even want to write it down. Maybe you've already pulled your notes out this morning. But here's a major point coming out of this. And, and this may make you uncomfortable. If people abandon God, God will abandon them. It's very, very strong in verses 24, 26, and 28. And you're thinking right now, did I hear you clearly, Mark? We, we can ignore God to the degree where he will leave us and abandon us. We need to understand, is he talking about permanent or is he talking about temporary? We really need to understand what's going on here. So let's dive in. In verse 23, we already saw that people exchanged God, the incorruptible God, for something we saw last week. In verse 25, he says, they exchanged the truth of God again for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, according to the text. Three times, verses 23, 25, and 26, people exchanged God for something not godly. Exchanging the truth of God for a lie, meaning they're abandoning truth. Now, that must be a really, really, really good lie because if God's made something true and plain, and God made it true. And people are hearing something else. That must be a really good lie. So what's the lie that he's talking about? Here's the lie. And you and I deal with it every single day. Whether you're a believer in Jesus Christ or not. This lie assaults us. And the lie sounds like this. Man is his own God. And so therefore he should worship and serve himself and do whatever he wants. It's the lie that Satan used in the garden it's the oldest lie in the history of the world. It is exactly what Satan came and said to Eve. Eve, just abandon God, reject his ways. Now, he would never say that. He said it much more subtly than that because he's very subtle. Did God really say? But the question was still the same. If you abandon God's ways and you eat of the fruit in the day that you eat of it, you shall be as God. That's the great temptation. That's the lie that we should worship and serve ourselves, go after whatever we want to. So check this. You'll see it on the screen. The result of self-deification is self-indulgence. If you're not familiar with deification, that, that means God-like. If, if the result is self-deification, you're making yourself to be God, you're going to chase after whatever you want to chase after every single time. That's the self-indulgence part. So... Because of the rejection of God's rightful rule, he laid down two very broad judgments. He put them right down. And one of them is aberrant sexual behavior. 
And the other one is this immoral mind that he begins talking about in verse 28. Each of them demonstrate God's wrath towards the rebellion. So let's go back into verse 26 and understand this giving over. There's a couple things that take place here. We said, first of all, they exchanged God, and now they're giving God over. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandon the natural function of women and burn in their desires toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And we, we see a giving over there. And then another giving over in verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over. Again, he gave them over. What's going on here? This is the most serious passage in the entire book of Romans, perhaps in the Bible, in context, because he's saying that if man abandons God, God abandons man. God gave them over. Theologians call this the divine abandonment, God's action, and there's consequences, and Paul develops those consequences in verses 24 through 32. So look with me at verse 26 now on the screen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. We see it three times, 24, 26, and 28. God gave them over, God gave them over, God gave them over. What's that mean? It means that he permits people to go deep into their sin in order to reap the consequences so verse 27 says, they received within themselves the due penalty of their error. And immediately, if you've, especially if you've been here in the last month, your mind should be tracking back to verse 18, where it says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. See, God doesn't just reveal his wrath by pouring fire down from heaven. That, that's biblical wrath. That's what we're thinking of in the last days. But God reveals his wrath also by allowing mankind to chase after shameless behavior. That's what he's referring to here. Even when his own people continuously disobey him, God turns them over. God lets them go. Let me back that up with Scripture. Look on the screen, Psalm 8111. My people did not listen to my voice, so I gave them over to stubbornness of their heart to walk in their own devices. Now, obviously, he's talking about Israel there. As a nation, they abandoned God. God gave them over. And when God abandons us to our own vices, we suffer devastation. Some of that is the removal of his protection. If we constantly are saying, I know what you want, I don't want it. Let me back that up with Scripture. Judges 10.13, you have forsaken me and served other gods, therefore I will deliver you no more. Here's one more. 2 Chronicles 15.2, the Lord is with you when you are with him, and if you seek him, he will let you find him, but if you forsake him, he will forsake you. Now, perhaps you're thinking right now, wait, if God is truly loving, he wouldn't do that. He wouldn't give people over. There's a reality check. You can't have free will and we love free will, right? We're all about that. You can't have free will without freedom. God's allowing the free will to play out. In allowing the exercise of the free will, there is a goal in view. We're not robots. God lets us react the way that we want to react. And there's a goal in view when he lets people go that way. The goal is to draw man back because our God is not willing that anyone would perish. Right, church? Church? 
He's not. He doesn't want anyone to perish. So he allows mankind to deteriorate further and further into sin for a reason, that they might see the result of their choices and come running back to him. That's why Jesus used the example of the prodigal son, guy who runs away from his dad with all his money, spends it all, and then comes back to his dad on his knees and says, oh, just treat me as one of your hired servants. Just let me come back into your house again. Now you chew on that for a minute. We'll come back to that thought. Since verses 26 and 27 bring sexual behavior right to the forefront, especially homosexual behavior, and it's such a significant issue in our world today, we really need to understand this as God intended it. And often, homosexuality is singled out. Did you notice as we read through that passage, though, there's 21 other sins listed there? Homosexuality gets the brunt of that passage but there's 21 other things listed there, and I have to ask myself, you better ask yourself this, do I give the same degree of consideration to things like adultery and gossip and slandering that I do to what the Bible says about homosexuality? Do, do I treat them all the same? Because God treats them all the same. So why is homosexuality singled out? the way that it is by Paul. And, and he's using it with more emphasis than all the others when he describes in detail what the men and what the women are doing. Well, he's illustrating something. In verse 26, he's just said, God gave them over to degrading passions. So Paul's using naturally homosexuality is a great example of that. In your notes, you'll find that there are six primary passages in the Bible that refer to homosexuality. It's old. It goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. It's been around a long, long time. And you'll see we refer to 1 Timothy in the Bible. There's some big passages that talk about it. Now, because it is all over the Bible, and because it's so prominent, individuals, especially homosexual activists, have an argument when they begin looking at the Bible. And this is the argument. And I say this respectfully, but here's what I hear from individuals who argue for homosexual behavior. They say the Bible has been misunderstood where homosexuality is concerned. And advocates will say it is denouncing only certain kinds of homosexual behavior, not in general all homosexuality. So there's three arguments typically that are most common today. I'm going to read to you the arguments so that I get it correct because I'm not familiar with them until I read what other people wrote, and here's what they wrote. Argument number one, condemning homosexual acts are, that are occurring in conjunction with idol worship is what Paul's talking about. Because Paul's in Corinth, right? And he's, he's writing to the Romans, the Greeks and the Romans. I mean, man, if you ever want to look at a debaucherous society, go back to the first century and look at what the Greeks and the Romans did, especially in Corinth. So argument one, number one, he's condemning homosexual acts in conjunction in, in the idol worship. Here's argument number two. They're condemning homosexual acts outside of a monogamous relationship. Argument number three, they're condemning unnatural homosexuality. What is that? Well, someone who's born to be homosexual who begins acting in a heterosexual way or someone who's born to be heterosexual begins acting in a homosexual way. Those are the three most common arguments. Regardless of where you land on that issue, I will tell you this. Our generation alive on planet Earth today in 2016 is the first generation in the history of the world to try and use the Bible to support homosexual behavior. 
No previous generation had ever attempted to do that. Our generation is bringing it to the forefront saying, wait, I think there's ways you can look at this and say that God is saying it's okay. Romans 1, which you have open before you, dismantles all of the arguments. Even very liberal scholars agree. Christopher Hitchens, one of the world's most foreknown atheists, said, if, if you want to endorse homosexuality, you actually need to become an atheist because he understood what Romans 1 says. It's very clear. Look with me at 26 and 27. These women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural, verse 27, and in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the women and burned in their desire toward one another. How do I understand what he's saying? You have to link it with verse 24. Verse 24 said, Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts. Now, the word lust is incredibly strong in the Bible. There is a reason that Jesus used it in an illustration saying that if a man lusts in his heart after another woman, he has already committed adultery with her. Because Jesus understood the meaning of the word lust to the first century people and very much Paul understood it. He's living in that culture. Here's what lust means to them. Lust has this notion of reaching out to grasp something that you have this incredible passion for. It signifies this really strong craving. So Paul is saying in the strongest terms possible, strongest word he had available to him, these individuals burn with a powerful, unnatural passion. When you study first century Greek and Roman behavior, you'll know what I'm talking about. Men in the first century world, greatly in the Greek culture, desired homosexual behavior over heterosexual behavior. Now, lest we spend too much time on trying to break that down, here's the 30,000-foot view. Paul's making this brilliant argument. In the same way people naturally know God, in the same way they can see his created hand, his fingerprint is all over creation, we naturally know right sexual behavior because of how God built us. And I've examined all the passages, and many theologians have examined all the passages, and we all come to the same conclusion. There are no set of mental gymnastics that you can ever make to allow the Bible to fit the lifestyle for which people want Scripture's validation. People want the Bible to back up their behavior, but when they can't get it, they want to silence it. But lest you think this is all about homosexuality, I need to clarify something for you. Paul's argument is this is evidence of God's wrath. The rejection of God results in consequences. I am not here, Mark Kring is not here to convince you whether or not homosexual behavior is a sin. I don't need to do that. God has already declared it. And what God says stands. It is what it is, church. The conviction of sin, however, is the job of the Holy Spirit. It's not your job and it's not my job. So we pray that the Holy Spirit would bring truth. But hear this before we move forward. We're not done yet. If human practices, and I don't mean just sexual behavior, if human behaviors are sin in the eyes of God and you say it's not, what you think or what you say won't matter. What God says matters. That's all that matters. It's his truth. So here's the big picture. In this desire for freedom from God, 
Man turns to an inversion of the created order. That's Paul's argument. Man has turned things upside down. I know what you're saying, God, but I don't want that. I want to flip the boat. So here's the debate that comes up, and especially in the medical community. What if God made me this way? What if I was born homosexual? And that is such an important question. It it deserves attention. If you're living with that kind of temptation in your life, you're wondering, how can this be? I have these desires. How can this not be? I feel like I was born this way. What explains that? And it's so important to address. So I'm going to ask you to do this. It's going to feel like a rabbit trail, but I'm not rabbit trailing, I promise you. I need you to advance in your Bible to Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, just a few more chapters from where you're at, or you can follow along on the screen. And this passage helps us really understand what is going on in our world. Why does it feel like things are not going the way that they should be going? Verse 20, Romans chapter 8. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Before I amplify that, let me explain something. Do you notice in the very first sentence he says, the creation was subjected to futility? There's an action involved there, church. God did something. It wasn't subject to futility. It was subjected to futility, meaning there was a time when it wasn't in futile places, but it was subjected to futility. Why? Because he did it in hope. Only God brings new hope. I kind of like that. (laughs) First time that popped in my mind. God brings hope. And so he subjected the creation in futility. So how do I understand verse 22? For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers. Men, I've been in the delivery room when a baby is delivered. Women, I haven't gone through what you've gone through if you've delivered children. But you know what Paul's writing about. And if you've stood in a delivery room or stood outside a delivery room or watched it on video, you know exactly what he's describing. I I watched my pretty, tiny, little 120-pound wife do things that I didn't know a body could do. And I saw her face swell up in ways that I thought, is her face ever going to go back down again? And and the blood vessels are just like, I'm going to think she's going to pop. I understand what he's talking about when he says they suffer and they groan. This world groans, this planet is suffering. Things are broken and it's confirmed day after day after day after day. You all had things go wrong in your week this week? I'll take it by your smiles, that's a yes. You're thinking week, day, Mark. I've had things gone wrong today. How do we explain the murders, rapes, suicide? Heart attacks, individuals driving trucks through the middle of a crowd in France and mowing children over, police officers getting shot, people not knowing whether or not they're valuable anymore, 
How do we understand that? Is not that something that consumes your mind, understanding how did we get a planet like this? Why don't things work the way they're supposed to work? It's because of the exchange. It's the exchange of God. You may very well have been born with weaknesses in your life. Perhaps one day modern science will say, yeah, there's genetic evidence people are born into homosexuality. Well, I got news for you. My dad had a great inclination towards alcohol. And he abused it severely. And his dad abused it. And his dad before him. I worked with the American Indian population in Arizona. I saw people who had a propensity towards alcohol because of their genetic disorders. We are broken because of the exchange of God and God subjected creation to futility in hope that one day that deliverer would come. The one who would make all things new. This brokenness, this fallenness, this list of 21 sins that Paul put on there, it's the exchange of God's glory. God didn't build me to sin. Sin distorts who I really am. Sin is a distortion of what God made you to be. The guy who said it better than me because he has much greater experience with it is Sam Alberry. I want you to see Sam's quote on the screen. Sam said this, desires for things God has forbidden are a reflection of how sin has distorted me, not how God has made me. You know why that's so important? Sam struggled his entire life with homosexuality until he met Jesus. And he decided at that point, I am no longer going to be defined by my attraction for weaknesses in my life. I am defined by Jesus Christ. So you look on the back of your notes and you see three resources that we listed today about individuals who struggle with homosexual sin and what they did as a result of it. Gary put those together and I read Sam Elberry's book. It's It's great. He did a powerful job with it. You want to know how to address the issues in your world? Look at what Sam wrote about. But hear me, church. This is not a passage about human plumbing. That's underlying, and it's an issue. But it's not the issue. It's just an underlying issue. You are looking in the face of the result of exchanging God for anything other than God. Some of you are going to have to make decisions today. Do I walk into the movie that I was going to walk into? Am I exchanging my desires for who God is in my life? Should I be reading the books I'm reading? Should I be looking at the websites I'm looking at? Should I do the business deal I think I'm doing this week? Paul lists them all. He says, they're swindlers. They're liars, adulterers. They're all there. This is not a passage about human plumbing. This is about who is God So we cut right to the chase. Go to verse 32 because he uses a phrase, these are those who practice such things. You might be thinking, wait, I I do some of these things. Does this mean I'm not inheriting the kingdom of God? The Bible is very, very clear, extremely clear when it says practice such things that there are behaviors that mankind actively engages in that God calls unrighteous meaning not glorifying, meaning anti-God, as in like anti-Christ, things other than God. So Paul uses this phrase, proso. It's not in your notes, but you'll see it on the screen, this Greek word, it's a primary verb. It's got a lot of power behind it because it means this, to perform something repeatedly over and 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 over. You getting tired of it yet? And over and over and over. 
meaning it's a way of life. Meaning, I'm going to do whatever I want to do. I know what it says. Who are you to tell me? I don't care. I want to live the way I want to live. He's talking about things that are as a way of life that are against God. See, the real issue of Romans chapter 1 is the exchange of God's glory. And when there's an exchange for anything in your life, for God's glory, there are consequences so if you can bear 1 Corinthians chapter 6 again, let me show you what it says. I told you we'd come back to it. I, I only put a, a part of it up. We saw this part. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That's the first part. That's what we looked at. Go to the complete verse. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators nor idolaters nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. It is really, really clear as you begin reading the lists that are in Scripture that the Bible does not describe homosexuality as a greater sin. All sin is an abhorrence to God. And all proso-sin Prosso, repeated over and over and over and over again. I'm going to do whatever I want. I don't care. All of that produces a consequence. So God gave them over, verse 28, to a depraved mind. Verse 28, as just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. I know we already talked about God giving over, but bear with me for a moment. God gave them over to a depraved mind. What is that? A mind that cannot any longer form right judgments because God gives us right judgments. His word gives us right judgments. And for someone to say, I don't want you anymore, how can they make right judgments? God gave them over to a depraved mind. So what do we see him doing? He's doing something active this is an action on God's part. It's an active decision. It's not passive. God's giving them over. This is God withdrawing his protective hand, meaning he's allowing the consequences of sin, allowing people to go deeper and deeper. And here's the way I picture it. We have a couple golden retrievers out at our house, and occasionally you know, we let them get out of the kennel and run around because we have a piece of property they can do that on. But occasionally we need to put them on a leash and my dogs hate the leash, let me tell you. And they will pull and strain and twist their head to do everything they can to get out from under the power of the leash. When we see God giving them over, we see him releasing the leash. And it's not out of frustration. And it is not out of a lack of love. But for a purpose, New Hope. The purpose is for redemption. The purpose is to draw them back, but the release still has consequences. So unfortunately, when man is released to do what they see right in their own eyes, 
It's never to move in a more righteous direction. Do you ever notice that? Finally, I'm free. Now I'm going to be more righteous. And it's not like that. We always go deeper and deeper into the opposite direction. Release to prove independence. Man gravitates further into sin. And sin will strip you buck naked. And it will leave you standing in the street, deprived of all of your dignity, your peace of mind, your clear conscience. It destroys relationships. It dismantles marriages and families and cities and nations. That's what sin will do. So however, fallen man is not concerned with sin. Can't be. Can't make right decisions. So fallen man's not concerned with sin. They're only concerned about the pain from the consequence of sin. And that's why God lets them go deeper and deeper. And fallen man, at that point, recognizes in despair, you were right. I don't like this life. I don't want to live this way. God does it in order to restore This is consistent with the nature and character of God. Let me show you Isaiah 19. Isaiah 19 speaks about the nation of Egypt. And if you know anything about Israel in Egypt, you know there are arch enemies in the Bible, right? And look at what God says. The Lord will strike Egypt, striking but healing, so they will return to the Lord and he will respond to them and will heal them. Can you imagine being a Jew at that time in the Bible saying, what, you're gonna do what? That is the nature and character of God. Yeah, he may strike. Yeah, he may release his protective hand, but it's for a purpose, to heal. Maybe you noticed in the list of 21 things that Paul put down that it was rounded out by the word unmerciful. I find this extremely interesting that this book, the book of Romans, which was built on the weight of God's mercy, and his grace, that that particular book mentions the bottom of the sins and rounds it off with someone who is merciless. Because someone who cannot even show mercy in their life, they have really hit the bottom. You could scarcely go any lower. But there is a lower stage yet. The Bible says there are not only those who practice these things, But as we come into verse 32, you'll see that in defiance of God, you go, man. They applaud others who practice the same things. I'm doing it. You do it too. Let's all go together. Verse 32, and although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. And the absolute pit of wickedness is reached when people involved in evil, no matter whatever the evil is that pops in your mind right now, when people who are involved in that also give hearty approval. It's one thing to justify your own wicked behavior, but to encourage others to do it, that is the bottom. And what you're seeing, church, is the direct result of exchanging God's glory for self-deification. I want to be on my own throne. I want to decide. I don't care what the Bible says. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. Who are you to tell me different? That's the exchange. So how do you and I respond to what we see here? I told you it gets bright, right? 
okay? Right now, you could use some brightness, couldn't you? Because you just felt like, oh, man, I can't even breathe right now. I feel that weight. I've felt it all week long, two weeks, three weeks long, knowing what was coming, working on this. Um, Praise God, it gets bright. Number one, this is not in your notes. You're not going to see it on the screen, but hear this. The abandonment that Paul writes of. The abandonment is not permanent. It is not eternal. That's not what he's writing about here. As long as we are alive on planet Earth, as long as I'm sucking air, God provides opportunity for forgiveness. That's good news, isn't it? That's God's good news. He provides the opportunity. You can come back to me. That's God's grace, and it's amazing. That's why we call it amazing grace, right? It's amazing grace. No matter what I've done, no matter where I'm at in my behavior, God says, you come back to me. I'm patient toward you. Look, look with me on the screen, 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That's God. You're wondering why things aren't getting fixed here on this planet? Because God's being patient. He's allowing this depravity thing to play out in hopes that we would not perish, but we'd come to repentance. Number two, if as you read over this list of the big 21 things that he put down there, remember, that's just representation. That's not all the sins. Verses 24 through 31 has a big laundry list, but do you find yourself identifying a personal struggle within those things? Maybe you said, yeah, oh man, I've been gossiping lately. And I do it all the time. Or I'm a slanderer. I shoot other people down constantly. Or maybe, maybe you say, like, swindling, is that talking about my business dealings? And, and maybe you're thinking, like, was that saying I'm, I'm not saved? It's saying individuals who do these things over and over and over and over again as a way of life with no repentance in their heart, they better check themselves. But let me remind you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're a follower of Christ, I want to remind you, Christians struggle with sin. Right? We do. The sin easily entangles us. We struggle with sin. Here's the question. How are you acting on the temptation? What you do with the temptation is the determining, determining issue. You are not identified by your weakness in your life. You're identified by the God who redeemed you. That's what Scripture tells us. So you've got to ask yourself, are you a Christian who occasionally struggles with sinful behavior? Or are you defining yourself by your attractions, by the things that you're weak towards? Because my God, I'm told that he's a father, and that father says you are a new creation in Jesus Christ. The old things have passed away. I had a young man come to me last night after the Saturday night service, and a good friend of his who's a teenager is struggling with his sexual identity. Wondering, man, should I go through like the transgender change? I'm not sure. I I don't like what I'm living like. I'm not sure who I am. And because society is gravitating in that direction, he feels the freedom to move that way. And so this young man came to me last night and said, what do I say to my friend? How do I help him? My first question is, is he a believer in Jesus Christ? Because if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, Your identity is in Jesus Christ. 
First and foremost, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. That's a promise of God's word. Here's the third and final thing. Forgiveness. Forgiveness is as available to the person caught in sexual sin as it is to the person who's caught up in gossip and slander and adultery. It's available to everyone. You're a swindler? God says, I, for, I can forgive that. If you can bear 1 Corinthians chapter 6 one more time, and I told you it promises, I promise that it ends on a bright note. Let me take you back into the dark in order to show you the bright. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Hang on. Verse 11. Such were some of you. Oh, man. Where's he going with this? Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Wow, now there's some good news. See, here's what Paul is saying. You guys are just like that. He's writing to the church in Corinth. There's gay people hanging out there. People who were formerly identified by their sexual behavior who now found their identity in Jesus Christ, washed, sanctified, justified, washed in the spirit of our God. Same is true with any type of sinful behavior. Such were some of you. You know what I would love, New Hope? I would love for New Hope to be identified by verse 11. Such were some of you. Because we can all say, yeah, I can find myself on that list. But I'm not there anymore. Because of what Jesus Christ did in showing me my sin. See what God's doing here in Romans 1? God's reminding us we are dealing with eternal souls. This is not us versus them. We are dealing with eternal souls who desperately need to understand the magnitude of God's holiness and God's glory. We're dealing with eternal souls who need Jesus because he promises strength for victory in the face of my sin that easily entangles me. That's why I'm so grateful I get to be your pastor. I've got sin just like you do. Some of you know all my sin. And I still get to be your pastor. And you still get to come to this church. We don't ever want people to stop coming because they have sin in their life. We all have it. And God says, I forgive it. And he promises strength for victory over sin to all who believe in Jesus. So New Hope this week, speak the truth. Speak the truth in love. That's God's admonition to us. Speak the truth in love. I want to pray with you. Father, we've dealt with incredibly sensitive material. And I, I'm so grateful because I feel the presence of your Holy Spirit. And I, I know others do as well. You promised wherever we're gathered, there you are in the midst of us, and we know that you're faithful to your word. I believe that you have taught us this morning. You have instructed us and you've taken a, a veil off from the eyes of everyone here who is willing to see. 
God, where you need to press on our own hearts, I ask that you would do it. That we not hit the parking lot today and say, well, that was interesting, and then go home and just disregard it. But Father, that it would have an impact in our life. You said your word does not go out and return to you empty, but it accomplishes the purposes for which you sent it forth. So we trust you with that, that you will accomplish your purpose in us, not just this week, but for the month and for the rest of our life. I pray for this in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, Amen.